This is Outside Shots, a college basketball betting podcast with Eli Hershkovich. Seven seconds to go. Three-pointer. Scott Phillips. <laughs> Covering game by game odds and futures markets. Thomas, Shake, Crossover, Step Back! It's Outside Shots, presented by the Lions. This is Outside Shots, the College Hoops podcast for betting underdogs on a nightly basis where we discuss why Scott Phillips, I owe Matt Painter a massive, massive apology, and of course, breaking down everything else you need to know on the College Basketball Odds Board presented by Forever and Always, ByTheLines.com. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and leave us a five-star review and you'll have a chance to win an Amazon gift card. And if you're watching on YouTube, give the video a quick thumbs up, subscribe and ring the bell to get notifications for whenever a new YouTube video, a new episode of ours is up. And the lines.com is also giving away a $25 Amazon gift card in our daily college hoops pick em contest. That also applies to the world cup for more details, head over to play dot the lines.com it is a post thanksgiving post feast week edition the fourth ever edition of the outside shots podcast with myself eli herskovich and my co-host scott phillips scott how much turkey i forget which appetizer or which side dish was your favorite but how much food did you consume over the weekend too much for my own good. Too much hoops, <laughs> too much food. But you know what? Uh, both of those things are just fine because now we have a little bit of a cool down period in December. The final time that we get the ACC Big Ten Challenge, which is disappointing to say, but should give us a lot of fun matchups this week. And, uh, you know, how was Thanksgiving for you, Eli? I mean, you got to travel a little bit at least. Got to go to Scottsdale, sweat the Wisconsin Kansas game on the plate. I took. Wisconsin. I think you had the, the first half under in that game, right? I did, yes. And I we advocated for the under last show as well. So that was another play of mine. But yeah, sweating on a plane is no fun with that regard. Woo. Well, they were now double digits, man. And until Tyler Wall decided <laughs> to take over, Wisconsin hit some outside shots to get them back in the game. Yeah, I was sweating. My girlfriend probably wanted to move seats at that point. But luckily, luckily for her sake, the Badgers came back and nearly pulled off the upset, if not for a couple of lucky breaks for Kansas, not only at the buzzer with the McCuller three or near the final seconds of regulation, but then the tip in, the put back to give them the win at the end of overtime. I, I want to have a quick note here to start the podcast, though, because, Scott, I know you're a little bit newer to the betting scene, at least from a content standpoint, but for me doing this for a while, five-plus years, you get people that maybe join Discord, start listening to our podcast, especially after a good start to the college basketball season, maybe hear about us, and then you have a rough week. I had a rough week last week, betting-wise, and I just want to let people know and kind of enforce the notion of money management and bankroll management because when you have a bad week, you need to be able to tell yourself not to chase. You need to be able to hone in and focus on the next day's card, focus on not trying to make up for what you lost because it can put you in a hole and bad stretches happen for any handicapper. So just want to put that out there as a little bit of a note for this podcast, because as people are getting introduced to the betting space, they may not have that same concept or a very important 
notion to have when you first start betting. Yeah, learn from your losses, plain and simple. I mean, if you're making plays that are falling short and they're falling short in a bad way and it's not just a couple bad breaks here or there, learn why you decided to go for that play in the first place and take stock in what those teams did to accomplish those results. And, you know, that's something that goes without saying in a lot of cases, but like you said, Eli, sometimes you get those blinders on after a couple losses, you try to do too much to overcome it and, you know, just learn from those small mistakes, try to catch them when you can and, you know, let's get some wins here. Yeah, with the exception of, well, I guess to your point, a little bit of variance that went against me with Lamont Butler fouling up four with about 15 seconds left against Arkansas and then turning the ball over when he had a timeout. Not great for my San Diego State pick on Wednesday night, but I got it back, thankfully, with a very fortunate Duke-Purdue full game under that somehow cashed with a combined 81 points (laughs) at the break. Purdue is going to be the main focus of the big three, which are our biggest reactions from the previous week in college basketball. But want to start things off, Scott, just running through here quickly, the adjustments on the national title futures odds board, because Houston is now the favorite to win the the title. That is plus 750 at DraftKings, as low as plus 600 at Caesars. Then Texas is up next, which I have a 35 to one ticket on. They're as low as 12 to one or actually 11 to one. At points back, Kentucky follows suit as low as 12 to 1 at BetMGM. And then Purdue is moving up the odds board as low as 16 to 1 at BetMGM, 18 to 1 plus 1800 at DraftKings. They knock off Duke in a big time way in the PK 85 tournament, covering and winning outright. They were one and a half point dogs against the Blue Devils. They were a short favorite against West Virginia to open that tournament. And then a six and a half point dog in the middle of that, the sandwich portion of it, the meat portion, I guess, if you want to use that analogy, six and a half point dogs against the Gonzaga Bulldogs. So like I said at the beginning, I have an apology to make for Matt Painter or to Matt Painter because I didn't think this Purdue backcourt was it. You lose a great on-ball guard and a great on-ball score in Jaden Ivey, but this is kind of the prototypical Matt Painter team, and Zach Eady has taken a massive leap. If you look at the Wooden Award odds, down from forty to one to fifteen to one at Bet Rivers. So, Scott, biggest takeaway from Purdue and their ascension over the weekend? I mean, they're built to play around Zach Eady, Eli. We saw that with the way that this team can really space four around him and get him numerous touches. I mean, the damage that Zach Eady was able to do to a big front line in Duke. You know, getting Derek Lively three fouls in the first half, fouling out multiple guys, having bench guys chasing foul problems. This is exactly what you envision in terms of a dominant seven foot four center. And for me, the passing ability and his ability to just drop soft shots in and around the rim is what's really separated Edie's play from last season. You know, we know the mobility is going to be a bit of a question mark on the defensive end, particularly with him playing drop coverage. We've talked about that going back to episode two when they faced Marquette and some of those high ball screen situations with Tyler Kolick. But, you know, to me, Purdue's really impressed me so far with their backcourt. We had question marks entering the West Virginia game with some of the uh, younger guys like Braden Smith and Ethan Morton with a little bit of a higher turn turnover percentage entering that PK tournament but you know Morton played most of that tournament without a turnover if he even did have one and Smith and Fletcher Lawyer have really stepped up their play and you know this is just great talent evaluation and team building from this Purdue coaching staff I mean you know Braden Smith and Fletcher Lawyer aren't exactly you know high-end four or 
five-star uh, prospects. They were, you know, kind of a system fit for this team around Zach Eady. And, you know, it's proving to be a great fit so far in terms of the way they play around him. And as you mentioned, Eli, him, uh, Zach Eady going now to the kind of number one in the Wooden Ward picture is a shocking development given his split minutes with Travion Williams last year. And again, you have to give him all the credit in the world for the development that he's shown from this past season because he looks like the real deal right now. And you mentioned Braden Smith. He had the option of either going to Belmont or Purdue. So that shows you how under-recruited he was. We harped on Purdue's offense, but their defense allowing under a point per possession to Gonzaga. Now Gonzaga has their fair share of issues, particularly on the defensive end, but that's an elite offense that they stymied a bit. And then 0.86 points per possession to Duke. Now that's still a, a young Duke team that had some injury issues specifically with Jeremy Roach. And obviously Whitehead is still working his way back. Maybe Lively is still working his way back too. But this Boilermaker defense is resembling, even though, like you mentioned, Edie has his issues when Purdue gets spaced out defensively. Now, granted, Duke didn't do that, and Gonzaga probably didn't do that enough until late until the second half of that game where they really went five out with Greg off the bench. This Purdue defense is starting to resemble more of a typical, prototypical Matt Painter defense, too. Yeah, they've been stellar, and they really don't try to force a lot of turnovers. They just get you off the three-point line. They funnel you down into Edie and make you shoot over that seven-foot-four wall that he's putting in front of the basket. And, you know, we've mentioned this before, but you don't really see a lot of seven-foot-four with mega standing reaches in practice. You know, you have, you know, some GAs, you know, putting up some brooms to replicate that sort of thing. But, you know, it's different when you see it in person and you're trying to guard him in the post with the physicality and the 290 pounds that he set in foot there but yeah I can't speak highly enough about this Purdue team and the way that they've started the three double digit wins the comeback that they had against Marquette going to a different lineup away from Edie there's a lot to like about this team besides having the wooden award leader at the center position excuse me and again we've talked about Caleb first some of the backups that have come into play and made some unsung contributions and I really like the makeup of this roster and the way that they're playing thus far they're a team to watch in the Big Ten getting some surprisingly uh, low odds in it's looking to be a kind of an interesting league now this year after Feast Week. Just to play devil's advocate on Purdue for a second, if they don't shoot well, and this is looking ahead to March, of course, this team has, when you look at some of the bracketology that's come out now, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to correlate to what happens later in the season. Purdue can regress shooting-wise, but that's kind of to my point. If this team doesn't shoot well from three, and if Edie gets in foul trouble, and or you face a, an eight-seed, a nine-seed Let's say Purdue is a a two seed. You get a seven seed that can space you out. That's kind of the question mark of a prototypical Matt Painter team that has a a dominant low post presence and can really shoot it. Because if you go back to that one Purdue team that made it to the Elite Eight, Carson Edwards really put the Boilermakers on his back. And that's not to say Matt Painter, especially against Virginia, almost willing Purdue to the Final Four by himself. So that's just my one question mark with Purdue. But this team still has, seems to have more upside than it did last season because it doesn't rely on a ball-dominant score like Jaden Ivey from the backcourt, and you don't have to deal with the split minutes between Travion Williams and Zach Eady. So for that, I apologize to Matt Painter. One other team we want to highlight before we go on is some quick notes, Scott, from over the weekend and the last week is UConn because you bet Virginia to win the title after they won their respective tournament last week or two weeks ago. I bet UConn to win the title after their win over Alabama 
and then they win the second half of the PK 85 against Iowa State last night, Sunday night, as we're recording this on Monday afternoon. If you go back, and this applies to Purdue too, nine of the last NCAA tournament winners have won an early season non-conference tournament, and UConn did just that. They cover against Oregon in a big way as a three-and-a-half-point, four-point favorite. They win outright against Alabama as a a one-and-a-half-point dog, and then they comfortably beat Iowa State on Sunday night. All those by double digits, similar to Purdue, too. So take that into account, even though I just mentioned my maybe one criticism with the Boilermakers. UConn has the fourth-rated adjusted defensive shot quality, so that's similar to adjusted defensive efficiency on Kempom, but this metric accounts for defensive shot quality points divided by possessions adjusted for strength to scheduling. So similar to Kempom as well, taking into which opponents the team has faced so far and how good are they. You have arguably the best center combination, and I was kind of surprised to say that just because I didn't know how good Donovan Klingon would be early on. I didn't know how good UConn's depth would be early on, but when Adama Sunogo gets in foul trouble, as dominant he can be, we saw how good Klingon was. He was the, the tournament MVP in UConn's run to winning, again, the, the second half of the PK-85. Tristan Newton and his ability to score on a high major team at a in a Power 5 conference, I was impressed with as well. Now, the turnover issues we'll get to after you make your point about UConn here because that's my one question mark about this team, even though I'm very high on the Huskies. But their depth as well. I mentioned Klingon off the bench. You have Caravan, another freshman at the four who could space the floor. Jordan Hawkins, even though he got into some foul trouble over the weekend, starting to make that sophomore leap. Andre Jackson, who has his fair share of turnover issues as well when he makes those one-handed bounce passes. But he really is the, the straw to this UConn drink because, or however you want to frame it, maybe that was a poor analogy there, but as a rebounder, as a passer, as a shooter at times, maybe not a consistent shooter, but really is the key to this UConn team, and he's coming off the bench. Joey Calcaterra as well, the San Diego transfer, can really space the floor, Hassan Diara, and Aline too from Virginia Tech, and I mentioned Diara just having more of a sound backup point guard than what they had last season with R.J. Cole and Alonzo Gaffney, even though Cole was a much more dominant on-ball scorer. Again, you lose Cole, you lose Tyrese Martin, Isaiah Whaley, Polly too. So you kind of lost some big pieces, and they added some depth that I had question marks about. But after what I saw over the weekend, besides the turnover concerns, I'm very high on this Huskies team. Yeah, there's a lot to like here, Eli, particularly with the 66 to 1 number that you got them at for the national championship picture. And they're just really putting it on teams right now, you know, kind of winning with ease and using that depth and wearing people down. And, you know, as you mentioned, Sonogo having a capable backup in Donovan Klingon, who at seven foot two is also going to give a lot of opponents a different type of look than they're used to seeing. I mean, you know, he was a massive revelation out in Portland, maybe besides everybody in that. Uh, 16 teams besides for Zach Eady, but you know, the depth, the three point shooting uh, improving quite a bit. So you can space the floor around Sonogo. You know, we know Dan Hurley's teams are going to defend, but I think that this team has different offensive dynamics and dimensions that we haven't seen from his UConn teams before. And particularly as Andre Jackson starts to get back up to health and some of that passing and some of the rust wears off. 
you know, the ceiling for this team, the different lineups they can throw at you, the depth pieces that you mentioned, they are a fascinating group in the Big East right now, particularly with the way Villanova is struggling. You know, you look at Creighton, the way that they were impressive in Maui. You look at UConn being up there. Xavier had some feisty performances and some close losses as well. I think you got to look at Creighton and UConn as kind of the two co-favorites in that league right now. And with UConn's light non-conference schedule, comparatively speaking, the rest of the way, I mean, you know, they get Oklahoma State and Florida, but not a lot of really tasty matchups before Big East play begins. You know, they could be uh, positioning themselves for a very solid team in the or solid seed in the NCAA tournament come March. And that's why I really like that 66 number that you played, Eli. I would make the case before we get on to some of the other headliners, we're going to do a, a shortened version of the big three. But I would make the case that UConn is the best team in the Big East with their defensive upside in mind. Now, Creighton has more of an offensive ceiling than Connecticut, especially when you take into account that they have seemingly taken care of their turnover issues, as we saw in the Maui-Jim Maui Invitational. And that's kind of my problem with UConn at this point, even though I backed them. Newton has a pretty high turnover rate, over 20%, and Diara nearly 30% in terms of the turnover percentage. But because they can defend at such a high level, and you have rim protectors off the bench too now, and you have shooting off the bench, Joe Calcaterra, might by season's end, and this might come back to bite me, I, I think he might be <laughs> the most underrated transfer addition if UConn makes the run that I think it's capable of in March because of his shooting off the bench and, and defensive prowess too. So again, that might be a bit of a hot take from what I saw over the weekend, but man, his to have a floor spacer like that because Aline didn't shoot it that well, and he's capable of shooting at a high percentage too, like we saw at Vatek. So has your perception changed at all in terms of the top of the Big East with your Creighton futures? Not particularly. I liked what I saw from the Blue Jays in Maui. Obviously, you know, short loss to Arizona withstanding. But, you know, again, just the feistiness in that comeback against Arkansas, the ability to face uh, the length and athleticism and defense of, you know, some of the teams we had question marks in terms of their offensive development. And I think Trey Alexander is a complete stud. That guy does so much for them on and off the ball when Nemhart isn't controlling the pace of things. And, you know, his ability to kind of get in the lane off of two dribbles and pull up, he's hit from three-point range so far this season, he can find uh, find Kalkbrenner on entry feeds. I mean, you know, again, we look a lot uh, at teams that have the profile of having two potential primary handlers as a blueprint for national title success, and that's what Creighton has. They've got two different guys who can really make plays off the dribble, all the weapons that they continue to have around them. I think Arthur Kaluma really played poorly in Maui for a lot of stretches, and yeah. considering he's their best pro prospect and someone who is still unlocking a vast ceiling, that kind of shows me that Creighton still has another gear that they can still hit but yeah to answer your question I think Creighton and UConn are the clear top two I'm still kind of bullish on the Jays holding out for now but I loved what I saw from UConn this uh, weekend and to your point because it's comparable to Andre Jackson both Kaluma and Jackson can turn the ball over a little bit too much I think for for both of our likings in terms of futures outlook because as good as Jackson can be defensively off the bounce is very explosive, especially in transition too. when they turn the ball over, like we saw against Arkansas, like we saw against Arizona, when those teams have an elite fast break offense and a very high turnover rate for UConn in that game, when you're not facing an elite offense like the Cyclones and they got some fortunate shot making against UNC down the stretch and that semifinal game, I guess, if you want to call it, but that, is my one concern with this Huskies team, but the number I do like. So Scott, just going through some other headlines here, you mentioned Arizona. 
They won the, the 2022 Maui Jim Maui Championship against your aforementioned Blue Jays. They closed as a two-and-a-half-point favorite in that game. Somehow the Creighton Blue Jays covered, though, after facing a double-digit deficit for much of that second half. They covered against San Diego State, which was unfortunate for my bet as a two-and-a-half-point favorite. And then the other game that they didn't cover in was as a 10-point favorite against Cincinnati when the Bearcats backdoored. Ballow, who's replacing Coloco down low, as the 13th highest effective field goal percentage. So his efficiency and his development, definitely something to watch. Similar to UConn turnover issues, Kirk Kreese's turnover percentage is still at a pretty high rate. So something to watch for there. Going through some other news and notes from the weekend, Tennessee holds Kansas to 0.75 points per possession, ending Kansas' 17-game winning streak going back to last season, and the Vols won the battle for Atlantis. Alabama knocked off UNC in four overtimes in the PK-85. Bediaco with a huge block that was overturned, which was initially called goaltending to help the Tide win that third-place game, and Alabama ended up covering as one-and-a-half-point Favorites, Gonzaga needed a late comeback over Xavier in PK-85, half of that tournament. Musketeers did cover as seven-and-a-half-point dogs, though. And you mentioned Villanova, Scott, and their struggles. Two and five straight up. One and six against the spread. They lost to Oregon on Sunday as a three-and-a-half, four-point favorite, depending on where you were shopping. The Ducks had six scholarship players in that game. And Villanova also fell to Iowa State and Portland in the midst of their PK-85 games over the the weekend and on Thanksgiving on the holiday itself. So, Scott, moving on to next week, or this week, that is. It's already Monday, and I'm already getting messed up by the weeks here. Looking (laughs) on tomorrow's slate as we're recording this on Monday afternoon, and we're going to kind of go through this by the Kempom projections and using those lines, projected lines as spreads and the projected scores as the total, trying to gauge where we might see value for these matchups. In the Big Ten ACC Challenge on Tuesday, the headliner is Virginia minus five. Again, using the Kempom line here, we'll see what it actually opens up at late Monday night or maybe Monday evening. Who's minus five at Michigan total, projected total of 129 per Kempom. Any initial thoughts for you on that matchup? Yeah, for me, I'm looking at Virginia if it's something anywhere near five early on. I mean, I really like the way the Who's have played so far this season. We had the ACC show bet at plus 700 that's now been down to uh, about uh, plus three, plus 280 in a lot of cases. And, you know, for me, it starts with Virginia on the offensive end. We knew how good that a Tony Bennett defense is and how methodical they play. But, you know, the way that this team is able to move the ball, their three-point percentages, having a clear-out guy like Reese Beekman who can attack off the dribble at the end of games or to close out a shot clock, I mean, you know, to me, this offense has been incredibly impressive so far. Michigan, to me, has just been so sluggish. I mean, the blowout loss at Arizona State, you've got some questionable wins where they didn't cover against teams like Jackson State and Eastern Michigan, where they just don't really seem to be flowing yet. And for me, it starts with Michigan's guard play. You know, they're doing a great job with Jalen Llewellyn of not turning the ball over and trying to establish Hunter Dickens inside. But, you know, by extension, not hitting a lot of three-point shots, not generating the looks needed to get that spacing for Dickinson. And that's where I think Virginia can really take over here. They can collapse down on Dickinson, do a number of different things with Dickinson in terms of his post touches and getting the ball out of his hands. And to me, Michigan's guards have to prove that they can hit shots in this one. And I don't I don't necessarily see that happening. I mean, that's the key because against a pack line defense, you have to hit threes. You mentioned their three-point shooting 
struggles so far. Llewellyn, 3 of 23 from 3 so far. And, and he's done that in his career going back to his Princeton days. But like I mentioned with Tristan Newton, the offense has been there for Newton. The floor spacing has been there for Newton, unlike Llewellyn. But the turnover problems for Newton haven't necessarily come around going from a mid-major to a high-major program. Llewellyn's shooting hasn't made that leap or at least transitioned over from a mid-major program like Princeton in the Ivy League to a, a Big Ten team that needs three-point shooting against a, a defense that's going to pack you in and limit dribble penetration. You made a, a really good point last week when you were breaking down Virginia's win over Illinois because when the who's really needed to break down that Illinois defense off the dribble, Reese Speakman was that guy, and Michigan has had struggles against Eastern Michigan and Arizona State in particular containing dribble penetration. But if you get a little bit of three-point shooting regression from Llewellyn, assuming it comes along at some point this season. Jet Howard has spaced the floor at a, a hyper-effective rate so far. And I think this is a little bit of a sell-high spot, too, for Virginia. Granted, maybe the ceiling is even higher than this number and projected number and spread maybe indicates. But if I can get Michigan in a, a hyped-up spot at home as a five-point dog with a lower total and a team that can shoot threes and can space the floor one through five with Dickinson doing that a bit this season. And he's shown the ability to stretch out defenses as well over the course of his career. So I think I might be on Michigan here, Scott. I think we might be on opposite sides of this Virginia, Michigan, ACC, Big Ten clash. Well, this is a huge week for Michigan, Eli. They not only have to face Virginia, but they get Kentucky on Sunday. So we're really going to learn a lot about the Wolverines and whether some of these sluggish mid-major wins were, you know, maybe some nights that they weren't bringing in necessarily, or if this is kind of the team that we think that they are. And I think that, you know, again, this Virginia team is able to exploit a lot of the weaknesses that they've seen in their guard play. And if it's opening around five, I'm going to take a look at that for Virginia for sure. Looking ahead to another game on Tuesday, I'll just quickly go through this one. Wisconsin projected to be a, a seven-point favorite at home against Wake Forest. Total similar to Virginia. Michigan is 129 per Kempom. So we saw it with Wisconsin and especially in their comeback against Kansas, they're playing through their bigs, unlike last season in the half court where maybe they got some late shot clock luck and Johnny Davis was really efficient with his pull-up shot making. But you're going through Tyler Wall, you're going through Crawl in the low post. Now, Wake Forest, the Demon Deacons, have size to combat that. Andrew Carr, the, the Delaware transfer, is the highlight in their front court. You have Keller, you have Clintman too, some reliable post-up defenders. The question is, though, for Wake Forest, can the threes drop? And they've shown that they can so far. Monsanto, a junior forward, and Appleby to the Florida transfer, and Hildreth, who has taken that leap from his freshman to sophomore season. Wisconsin, I, I mentioned this going back to last week, where they're allowing such a low three-point shooting clip, still at around 23.4%, where at some point that number is going to regress. And we saw it a bit against Kansas. So if Wake Forest can make them pay, from three, I think they can keep this game within three possessions. Yeah, I don't love this uh, seven number that Ken Palm's initially projecting in terms of a play in Wisconsin, Eli. And, you know, again, Wisconsin's offense is still so shaky at times. Uh, for as good as they were defensively at Battle for Atlantis and some of the stretches where they battled back and had some key stretches there, I, I still don't love... 
how they can literally go minutes at a time, whether it's the Stanford game or Green Bay or spots at Battle for Atlantis where they just generate next to no offense whatsoever. And on a night where they have, you know, a good three-point shooting opponent like a Wake Forest that can get hot, that can be a dangerous recipe to cover a number like seven. So for me, I'm going to stay away from that number on the outside. I still like those Wisconsin team at home in particular. That defense is going to carry them to a lot of wins at the Kohl Center, but yeah, for an early season clash where their offense still just isn't clicking yet, I might stay away from this one. And for what it's worth, shot quality in terms of their bets site projects that game to be a Wisconsin two-point victory. And shot quality bets is your home for smarter basketball betting models. The shot quality betting model makes projections based on expected scores, eliminating variability, and increasing predictive accuracy. Ready to win more bets? Head over to shotquality.com, shotqualitybets.com as well. Today, you're listening to the Lines.com Podcast Network. Looking for the latest player props and the best betting odds from the top U.S. sports books all in one place? Then join us right here every day this season for free picks and best bets from the sports betting experts you can trust. Check out the Lines.com NFL Megapod as Matt Brown, Steven Andrus, and Adam Candy break down every game for this weekend's football slate. Join the Coast to Coast podcast crew Mondays through Fridays as Nate Weitzer and Josh Lander bring you the best player props and game lines for Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL. And tune in to Beat the Closing Line twice a week as Nicole Russo, Mo Nawara, and Eli Hershkovich dive into NFL opening lines, plus special guests from the sports betting world. So subscribe, rate, and review to the Lines Podcast Network, the source you can trust to make you a better sports better. And I'm going to mention this because I know you're going to hate me for it. Maryland <laughs> projected to be a 10-point favorite on the road at Louisville, total of 134. Again, that's per Kempom. Would you consider the Cardinals at all in terms of this being a potential look-ahead spot for Maryland with Illinois next up? I'm, no. you know, if you're not watching the YouTube, you see me shaking my head this entire time. <laughs> Louisville is garbage right now. And, you know, I feel awful. This is a proud program with a lot of positives with Kenny Payne to the table. But, you know, sometimes you inherit a roster and you also inherit a schedule. And this schedule right now is doing Louisville no favors. They're continually having to play guards that can carve them up. And, you know, for me, who guards Jameer Young in this game? Who guards, you know, Dante Scott? I mean, I just... The, the issues with Louisville are so big right now that, you know, I, I'm looking at that 10 number and potentially playing it because they just haven't fixed any issues in the second half. They're getting outrun. I mean, there's just not a lot to like here right now. And we were talking, we were going through this off pod, as you like to say, that maybe the market still hasn't adjusted enough on Louisville. To your point, if you're looking at the Terps in this game, if it does open around 10. Now, we did see this a little bit over the weekend and Sunday in particular, where it's with any sport. It's not just with college basketball, but just using this game as an example. The market bet up James Madison to, I want to say from- example. Right, minus 10 to to a 15-point favorite against Valpo on a neutral floor. And I believe James Madison lost that game outright. Valpo won an OT, impressive win, and- you know, there was some uh, balance there with those two teams both facing South Dakota State the previous few days, and that number jumped five points in about an eight-hour span and still didn't cover. It was kind of incredible. Right, so maybe this number gets high enough. The betting market might not think the number is has been adjusted enough towards Louisville struggles. Now, to your point, the communication, it, it is truly like watching a JV team out there because their bigs can't communicate. Yeah. They can't finish around the rim. So I'm just making the point that it might be a little bit of a look-ahead spot 
for the Terps with Illinois at home in a huge Big Ten game coming up later this week. Over to Wednesday's card, Scott. Duke, a three-point favorite at home. Another edition of the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Kempon projects the total to be 137, projected spread of around three. Any sort of buy-low opportunity here for Duke to you? Because that's the way I see it, especially with an Ohio State team that didn't really get exposed enough because if you go back to their last game in the Maui Jim Maui Invitational where they upset Texas Tech when the market came in on the Red Raiders, they didn't really have to face in stout isolation scoring offense, which granted Duke wasn't against Purdue, but this Ohio State defense to this point isn't what Purdue's defense is, and they rank 201st in shot quality points per possession against isolation scoring, which is more so based on projected efficiency rather than Kempom points per possession, where the actual efficiency is in terms of the, the score itself. Shot quality uses projected scores to evaluate their offensive efficiency numbers. But I still think if Duke gets more scoring, and that's with Jeremy Roach's ankle being a little healthier, which it wasn't seemingly in the second half of that Purdue game and late in the first half too, you have really good ISO scores like Whitehead, assuming his minutes tick up and you see some more efficiency from him, some growth from him, Proctor too, and Filipowski who could take you off the dribble at the four spot. Lively isn't an ISO score, but he matches up well against Zed Key, assuming he does stay out of foul trouble. So that's a game I'm considering if it does open around three. Yeah, that one scares me a little bit, Eli. I think this Ohio State offense can really put it on people if they get hot at certain times. And that combo of Justice Suing and Bryce Sensabaugh is a really deadly one at certain times as well. And, you know, for Duke, they still really haven't figured out their identity or who they are yet. And I think that's why you're seeing some of these closer games than you might see in a, you know, February or March type of setting once they're fully loaded and have figured things out. But, you know, outside of Kyle Filipowski and a healthy Jeremy Roach, just a very up and down roster in terms of what we're seeing from a lot of guys. It doesn't look like Derek Lively's quite healthy yet, particularly that game against Edie where Edie just kind of ate him alive into foul trouble. You know, Tyrese Proctor has made a little bit of a leap since the first couple games when he looked like he was, you know, definitely not in this level of play, but Again, like I just want to see this Duke team get a little more consistency from secondary scores. But what I do like for Duke in this matchup is that Ohio State, much like the Kansas matchup earlier in the season, is a very small team in a lot of their lineups. And, you know, for a seven footer like Filipowski, who can spread the floor, who can take it down low, you look to start to have some of those mismatches with him and revolving the offense around him. And that's where I think you can really like Duke kind of exploiting that. But again, if a guy like Suing and Sensabaugh gets hot, which is, you know, definitely capable of happening, then this could be a very interesting matchup because I think this Ohio State offense is pretty good. Over to another huge game on the Wednesday card. Indiana projected to be a six-point favorite against North Carolina. That definitely was not the initial in-season projections going back to the the off-season preseason numbers. Total of 142. So Indiana has the the 14th rated adjusted defensive efficiency on Kempom, but we've seen it, especially in their matchup at Xavier, which is really their only test to date. They do struggle with their off-ball defense, and that's where if UNC shooting is on, which they ran a ton of ISO sets for Caleb Love in that four-overtime session against Alabama, they didn't really run much true offense, I thought, or what their potential could be in terms of ball screens against Alabama. But nonetheless, if UNC's shot-making is on, they have the potential to have that type of efficiency with Caleb Love and R.J. Davis then I think this number might end up being a little bit inflated and you might get an opportunity for a buy low spot against 
Indiana on the road. Now, that is a tough road environment, all things considered. And I also want to mention that for Cameron Indoor with Duke, Ohio State, especially with Duke losing that game to the Buckeyes last year on the road. Now, the question is, can Indiana exploit this UNC defense, which is very exposable in transition? So just a couple notes for me on that game. I don't think I'll have a play on it because of this being Indiana's home opener in terms of the crowd being hyped up. And if UNC isn't hitting shots and Indiana can leak out on the break, I think this is going to be, it might sound crazy, but a tough number for the Tar Heels to cover. Yeah, for me, the first storyline happens even before tip-off happens. Trace Jackson Davis and Armando Baycott are not healthy right now. Uh, Jackson Davis missing the Little Rock game with back soreness, only playing 18 or so minutes in their latest win over the weekend. And Armando Baycott also dealing with an ankle issue coming off of the four OT game and three games in you know, four days at the PK. So he said he felt sharp pains in his right ankle after the game. We've seen what can happen with limited mobility with Baycott uh, in terms of the national title game last year. So again, the, uh, in these coming days, as we start to get more reports about Baycott's ankle in particular, I want to monitor that in terms of line shifts. But, you know, outside of that, I love the way that Indiana has gotten other guys to be emerging stars, whether it's in Trace Jackson Davis's absence from injury or just freshmen stepping up. Uh, this latest instance, being Tamar Bates over the weekend, who really seemed to play with a confidence and aggression that we've kind of been waiting for out of him. Uh, Malik Renault has been playing well. They've got more balance with Xavier Johnson hitting shots now. And that three-point shooting around Trace Jackson Davis has really improved since last season. So for me, I like Indiana. I think they're, you know, again, a team to consider in the hierarchy of that Big Ten race with Purdue as being some of the best teams in that league. But as you mentioned, Eli, they haven't really been challenged yet. That Xavier win and some puzzling decisions down the stretch is something to watch for but you know if Baycott's not even playing or he's got limited mobility to begin with then they might be able to run them off the floor here it sounds crazy to say but you're right especially if you lack that rebounding presence and Baycott's ability to create second chance opportunities that also impacts if he is on the floor and if he is limited with his mobility that definitely impacts UNC's transition defense which is already their most exploitable part of that end of the floor so One other game that I want to hit on in terms of a look ahead for the weekend is on the flip side of that, Indiana goes to Rutgers on Saturday and just sticking with the Wednesday theme, Rutgers is projected to be a three-point dog at Miami, total of 137. If the market gets that Indiana win and the projected line for the Indiana-Rutgers game on Saturday is Indiana minus three, and we see a two-possession line pop. I will be all over the Scarlet Knights at home, not trying to dive too much into that game for the sake of it's a weekend game and we still have other games to look at here over the course of the week. But definitely a, a good spot to sell high on the Hoosiers if they do indeed take out UNC at home. Rutgers, another team to watch for in terms of their injury outlook. Eli, Caleb McConnell just came back from injury. They're trying to get Paul Mulcahy healthy as well. And this is their biggest five-game stretch of the season. It's been talked about with this coaching staff quite a bit. You get Miami in the ACC Big Ten Challenge on Wednesday, a winnable matchup. But again, you're getting some of those important pieces back in the lineup. Then you get Indiana, Ohio State, Seton Hall, Wake Forest. I mean, that's five straight high-major opponents all in a row in December, which is really tough to deal with this early in the season when you're a team that's trying to get some key pieces back so again keep an eye out for Rutgers and their health in that Wednesday matchup against Miami in terms of how that might play into that Indiana spread but something to watch for there as well the Hoosiers having a lot of injury issues with their opponents this week good point and McConnell came back like you mentioned against Central Connecticut it's given Rutgers an opportunity though to try to 
get some growth out of their other guards. Cam Spencer, the Loyola Maryland transfer, is playing well. Low turnover rate, high assist rate, top 350 assist rate, I believe, across Division One. Derek Simpson, the freshman guard, too, is starting to pick it up in terms of scoring and can space the floor a bit. So I am impressed with Rutgers' depth. And again, we'll see how high that number gets for Indiana Rutgers. Looking ahead at the rest of the week, Purdue projected to be a 13-point favorite at Florida State. That could be a, another letdown spot just in terms Oof. of if the number gets high enough. I know that Florida State offense is gross to back, and they have their own turnover issues. Baba Miller still suspended by the NCAA, and Jalen Ganey, the mid-major Ivy League transfers out for the season. They're, they're big, who is projected to play the typical Leonard Hamilton five spot. Yeah, I mean, you could have... Leonard Hamilton bring back all of his historically large centers over the last couple of years. And I don't know how this team still stops Zach Eady. They're just, they are a brutal watch right now. And if it wasn't for Louisville and Cal going over, then we'd be talking about Florida <laughs> state as the worst high major team in the country right now. They're that but bad. A four possession <laughs> spread getting to five. It's gross. And listen, I back some, some bad underdogs in college basketball. Hence my, my Louisville pick last week against Cincinnati, where I believe you were on the Bearcats. <laughs> it happens. You know, you cover college basketball from a, a non-betting perspective and you saw it. And this definitely applies to the betting landscape, to the betting market too, when teams get bet up after big wins and Purdue got a bunch of those this last week in the form of Gonzaga, Duke, and even West Virginia. When the market falls in love with the team and a number gets inflated to a point where it's gross, but it maybe Florida State, if they're able to get Zach Eady in foul trouble and exploit this Purdue transition defense, you're able to keep this thing within three possessions. So backing underdogs is disgusting ones in Louisville and Florida State is not for the faint of heart. But just in terms of the number itself, <laughs> it might get high enough where it's worth considering. No, that's a totally fair outlook, Eli. And again, for me, offensive rebounding is going to be a huge factor in the actuality of how that spread plays out. Purdue, one of the best in the country. Florida State's not clearing the ball in the defensive glass right now. That could be a huge indication of where this matchup goes early. Looking to Thursday, Texas projected to be an eight-point favorite at home against your Creighton Blue Jays, total of 138. Would you consider that my, spread? To my Creighton Blue Jays. Unbelievable. I got enough Texas futures in there as well at 20. Maybe not 35 like you, but All right. you know, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough game for me. Okay. I'm just looking for a both sides played hard type of game. Rasheed Wallace game right there. <laughs> both teams played hard, my man. So no <laughs> bias then for your both of your futures bets. Would you consider if it does open around three possessions, that line to be inflated? I would, yes. I mean, you look at Creighton and their ability to battle against long and athletic teams like Arizona and Arkansas during the Maui Invitational. And, you know, as long as they're limiting turnovers and getting the looks that they want, which they have so far this season, then I don't see why they can't keep it within one or two possessions of Texas here. And again, Texas beat up on a Gonzaga team that maybe isn't the Gonzaga team we all envisioned them to be a couple weeks ago. And something to keep in mind for that as well, because the Longhorns really haven't played anybody else that's been particularly difficult difficult yet Texas though with the the top rated adjusted defensive efficiency on Campom also the number one ranked adjusted defensive shot quality so they are an elite defense and I offensively maybe they exploited and they, they took advantage of a, a pretty poor Gonzaga defense I still can't fathom why Mark Few wasn't trying to throw a different look at Xavier 
even though the Musketeers could space the floor going back to that Sunday game, Jack Nungy was doing a lot of that in the second half. They kept going man-to-man, and they kept getting burned, and they, they got some fortunate stops, I thought, and Julian Strother hit some big shots for Gonzaga to get back into that game and nearly cover down the stretch in the final minutes. Now, I do think Chris Beard and this motion offense can take advantage of a, a ball screen defense for Creighton, which is their biggest liability, and we saw... Arkansas take advantage of Kalkbrenner and ball screens and Arizona with Ballow do the same thing to Kalkbrenner. So I do think that's where Texas can have an advantage in the half court. Now, granted, is that three-point efficiency going to be there? Tyrese Hunter, while he's shooting the ball a hell of a lot better than he did as a freshman, similar to that small sample size against LSU going back to the 2022 NCAA tournament. Will Texas shoot the ball efficiently? That doesn't just apply to to this game, but it also applies to their long-term outlook. But I do think Beard could take full advantage of Creighton's ball screen defense. Yeah, I think the thing to me is that, you know, Balo is a grown man down there playing for Arizona, and he had one of the most impressive weeks of any player all season long. And I don't know if Dylan DeSue coming off of injury and Dylan Mitchell as a freshman are ready to face and do damage against Kalkbrenner down low the way that we saw Ballo do with going for, you know, 30 and 10 in that Maui championship game. So again, I still think Texas's front court is tremendous. Their athleticism is going to get out and make plays in this one. But in the half court, I do wonder how they can score on Kalkbrenner if they try to go in on him or go low on him. You got to shoot in the mid-range with, uh, you know, guys like Hunter who has shown a capable pull-up game at times and you know, again, fascinating matchup. I don't love the eight for Texas, but, you know, this one could get, you know, bet a number of different ways as we see the week progress here. Yeah, I think you could see Creighton as a trendy dog. And the compound line doesn't necessarily equate to what the actual spread is going to be. So keep that in mind of as course, well while yeah. we're, we're talking about these. We're working with what we, we have here in terms of projected spreads. UConn around a nine-point favorite potentially against Oklahoma State. Total of, of 140 at both ends of the floor. Both teams' respective turnover issues come into play here because they can both force their fair share of takeaways and get out in transition. I think UConn has the better defense in the half court overall, and and that's where Oklahoma State can really struggle. And if UConn's able to to get out on the break, Oklahoma State will have a tough time hanging around in this game. So another case where you might have a trendy underdog and maybe the market doesn't respect the Huskies enough, or this is a letdown spot here for UConn. So just a couple angles there. Anything for you, Scott, too, when you're looking at this Big 12, Big East matchup? No, I think, you know, UConn answered some of the questions that I had about this particular matchup, and that being Cisse uh, going against Sonogo in the interior. Now that they have a backup like Klingon, who can come in and provide capable minutes for Sonogo, that's not as much of an issue for me anymore. So, again, as long as UConn is getting that perimeter shooting, I think this is one of the deepest lineups in the country. And, I, you know, for me, Oklahoma State still has to prove some things for me before I really start to look into them as a play here. Going to Friday's card, arguably the biggest matchup of the week, a rematch of the 2021 National Championship game where Baylor smoked Gonzaga. It's the Bears against the Bulldogs, total of 165 projected per Kempom. Kempom projects this line at Baylor minus one. That's going to get bet up quickly if the Bears open around a pick Baylor also faces Marquette on Tuesday, so a potential look-ahead spot, but I'm not necessarily going to look towards the Golden Eagles in that one. Ball screen defense for Gonzaga, a huge area of concern, and you harped on that. You mentioned that a ton in our preseason podcast that Baylor runs a lot of ball screen action under Scott Drew. 
Gonzaga's defensive issues have been all around at that end of the floor, but they have had a tough time stopping ball screens, whether it's off ball or in pick and roll. So you would expect Baylor to take advantage of that with Cryer and Flagler and trying to rotate Thamba to the basket. But you look at Gonzaga at the other end of the floor. I was impressed with Nolan Hickman, who limited the turnover problems that we saw earlier in the season. Now, the question is, it's been there for Gonzaga, especially, like I mentioned, against Xavier. Gonzaga shooting over 40% from three. That's how you beat a no-middle defense. So the motivation for Gonzaga in this game is going to be at an all-time high. That doesn't necessarily correlate to a win. But if Gonzaga's around a possession dog, which isn't crazy, considering the way the market might perceive Gonzaga after their early season struggles, Bulldogs might be worth a look here, Scott. Just for me, at least, when I look at Gonzaga's ability to exploit Baylor's half-court defense. Yeah, I mean, I loved the way that Gonzaga was able to close out some of their wins uh, this weekend. They've gone to a shortened rotation already after that brutal eight-game start to the season or seven or eight games, whatever the sample size is. And it's kind of fascinating to see some of the um, you know tweaks that Mark Few has already made with this lineup. He's got Ben Gregg as his primary big off the bench as opposed to Efton Reed. He's gone to a more limited, tighter rotation. And Hickman improving, as you said, is such a huge key for that team's overall development and ceiling. But, you know, for me, I love Baylor's ability to just attack, attack, attack off those ball screens, whether it's Cryer or Flagler or Keontae George giving them another look. And, you know, again, I, I think that this is one of those ones, as you mentioned, that's going to get bet down pretty quickly, regardless of what it is, especially if Baylor's, uh, you know, minus one. But to me, like, Gonzaga's got a lot of issues that they still have yet to address, starting with Hickman and that inconsistent perimeter play and facing one of the better perimeter units in the country. I think Baylor could really take advantage of this matchup in a December setting as opposed to maybe February or March. It's a good point in terms of the early season matchup versus later in potentially in the dance because we were robbed of that going back to the 2020-2021 season with the Baylor-Gonzaga December matchup getting canceled. Baylor's defense and their ball screen defense in that game exploited Gonzaga, especially Drew Timmy in very sound low post big, but still a bit of a defensive liability. I don't think Baylor has the athleticism that they had up front in that game, but ball screen defense for Gonzaga, you and I both touched on it a lot, is a, a big issue and their collective defensive problems are concerning as well in this game. So we'll see where that number gets to on Friday. Over to Saturday, some big games, like I mentioned, Indiana Rutgers, a potential letdown spot for the Hoosiers at Rutgers, at the Scarlet Knights. A big one with Xavier projected to be a two-point favorite at home against West Virginia. We mentioned the Musketeers' inability to close out Gonzaga after coming back in the second half. And one note for Xavier with those three losses against Gonzaga, Indiana, and Duke, they all came by a combined 13 points. Now, granted, Xavier lost some close games with Travis Steele last year, so it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to correlate to a little bit of regression in that area. And then you also get Houston as a projected six-point favorite at home against St. Mary's, total of 116. Either of those games stick out to you as potential plays, Scott. Not particularly. Again, uh, St. Mary's, it's going to be fascinating to see how they look against the number one team in the country, but I can't get a feel for this Houston team yet. Obviously, we know their defensive identity. We know what they're capable of and the destructive nature at which their guards can just attack you relentlessly. But that being said, that was kind of a shaky uh, showcase against Kent State this weekend. A very good Kent State team, I might add, that could do some damage in the MAC this season. But you know, when you're the number one team in the country and you finally get that label for the first time as a program in 39 years and you've been ascending for a few seasons and you reach that point, you become the true hunted. 
that's going to be a fascinating dynamic for Houston to deal with, particularly against a St. Mary's team that's very used to facing a team like Gonzaga that is generally number one or number two in the country the last few years. So St. Mary's isn't going to be phased by that at all. I think if they knock down some early shots that this could be closer than expected. And I'm going to be fascinated by that early number as a potential St. Mary's play, just given Houston's shakiness in the Kent State win. You might get some market value for the Gales with that loss against Washington in overtime. So the market might not be as high on on St. Mary's as you would get if the Gales came into this game as a undefeated team. Now, the question is, can Houston generate turnovers against a Randy Bennett-reliant ball screen offense with Saxon now being the primary focus? And then can Houston, if they are able to limit those pick-and-roll primarily possessions, are they able to then subsequently go down to the other end of the floor and get out on the break, try to leak out because this St. Mary's half-court defense is obviously the the most important part of their defensive structure, and they can be had in transition like I've hit on with a lot of these teams so far on the podcast. So if Houston is the one that's controlling the tempo in this game, I think it's going to be tough for St. Mary's to get back into it considering the limited amount of possessions with the pace both teams play at in the half-court. But like you said, if St. Mary's hits some outside shots and it opens things up for their pick-and-roll offense – then we could be looking at a completely different outcome. St. Mary's is a much better defense than they've had in the past as well. Number eight on Ken Palm right now, that will obviously regress over time. But again, you talk about the Randy Bennett offense spacing the floor at a number of different spots. Their defense has been very solid so far as well. Top 10 and two-point percentage allowed. You know, a little bit shaky from three-point range, but that's where Houston has struggled a bit. So again, there are some holes here that makes this an intriguing matchup, especially if Houston has bet up quite a bit. But, you know, again, I I think that this is the type of matchup that's a dangerous look for Houston here as the number one team in the country. And another just individual note for this game, Logan Johnson shadowing Marcus Sasser, potentially. That's going to do it for the fourth edition of the Outside Shots podcast as we hit on some of our biggest takeaways from Feast Week, Scott, and, and looking ahead to some games. A big card, another huge card. Luckily, it's not throughout the day, and we're not going to be exhausted as the week moves along. At least we get some night games. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be a fun week. Like I said, the final ACC Big Ten Challenge, which is really disappointing to hear from all the television uh, BS that we tend to deal with as a college basketball fan, but you know, enjoy it while it lasts because I think both these uh, conferences have produced some memorable games in this early December setting, and you know, some good ones should be had this week as well. Especially, you know, again, some of these other matchups, Creighton and Texas, and Baylor and Gonzaga. I mean, this is still a pretty good week for hoops, even if it's not necessarily a marquee showcase like a feast week. Luckily, I think this is the last week we're going to hear commentators say X team is a Final Four team as I think we're gonna have a little bit of a lull <laughs> after this. I was I was texting Scott off pod that we should start saying X team is going to be a round of 32 team because the amount of exaggerations that I heard over the weekend with some of these teams after getting one win, you know, you made the point that some of these tournaments resemble more so conference tournaments considering you're playing yeah. consecutive days versus the NCAA tournament when you at least get one day to adjust. So I'm at least happy that we're not going to hear the exaggerations at a premium after this week, at least. Yeah, I mean, we saw some huge numbers from teams like Purdue and Virginia and Arizona get bet down immediately after tournament wins in terms of their futures outlook. You can too. So, you know, 
Yeah, absolutely. So keep an eye on how those numbers can maybe inflate after a big win. We saw it with Texas after they beat Gonzaga. And by extension, look for some of these bounce back teams like North Carolina, who have lost two straight. Maybe they lose a third to Indiana here and their number starts to drop. If you're still a believer in the Tar Heels and you still believe in everything that this team has ceiling wise, then that's the type of time you look at that number in terms of what it might be. But again, some fascinating changes to the early season markets. I think we're going to see some of those start to slow down now that the narratives around tournament play have subsided and Again, we're going to see some really fun matchups this week that really dictate kind of how December goes for the rest of non-conference play. No doubt. That is Scott Phillips. You can follow him on Twitter at Phillips Hoops. Follow me on Twitter at Eli Herskovich. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Outside Shots podcast. We'll talk to you guys next week.